At Woodside Bible Church, we gather each week to pursue God by studying His Word together. This winter, we're taking a fresh look at a familiar story through our series, Jonah, At Odds with God. Tune in now as we face the same choice Jonah did, to receive God's mission or to resent it. Amen. Good morning, church. Good to be with you all again and look forward to continuing to worship the Lord as we open the scriptures together. Today we're in Jonah chapter 3. We are in the middle of this book of prophecy. Um, I feel like there's a few new faces here, so I want to share an update on the entire Old Testament and where we are within the book of Jonah. All right, so in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, and the pinnacle of God's creation was man. Tragically, we disobeyed our loving ruler, God, and fell into sin. In Genesis chapter 12, graciously, God gave promises to Abraham, a man named Abraham, that God was going to undo the curse of sin through this one man, Abraham. He was going to bless the whole world through Abraham and his descendants. Abraham had a son named Isaac. Isaac had a son named Jacob. Jacob had 12 sons, holy moly, that eventually made up the 12 tribes of Israel. By the end of the book of Genesis, they wind up in Egypt because of a famine that took place in the promised land. Um, They end up being enslaved in Egypt. God raises up a man named Moses to deliver God's people out of Egypt. He then gives his law to his people through Moses to start to shape the people um, in the way they live and the way they worship. God leads them back to the promised land. He eventually starts a monarchy there under a man named David. Tragically, again, um, the, David, uh, the, the kingdom is split in two. There's a civil war. There's a northern kingdom called Israel. There's a southern kingdom called Judah. God sends prophets to each one of these kingdoms to deliver his word, to call the people to repentance. And we're looking at the life and ministry of one of those prophets. His name is Jonah. He specifically ministered in northern Israel, um, but God called him to a special mission outside of the promised land. None of the other prophets ministered outside of Israel, outside of Judah, except for Jonah. Jonah was not entirely called to God's people. He was called to go to this foreign land um, in the Assyrian Empire, um, this city specifically called Nineveh. You remember from chapter one, Jonah resists this call. He does not want to go to Nineveh because he hates the Ninevites. Um, So he goes to the, in the opposite direction, um, to a city called Tarshish. God chases him down with this storm. God traps him in the sea, in the belly of a fish. Fish vomits him out. We saw him last week come to repentance. We saw this prayer of repentance and, and thanksgiving. And in chapter three, God is gonna renew this call with Jonah. He's going to say the same thing. I still want you to do this. I still want you to go to Nineveh. And so that's where we pick up the story now. So Jonah chapter 3, I'm going to read all 10 verses. Brothers and sisters, this is the word of our God. Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, And call out against it with the message that I tell you. So Jonah arose and went to Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. 
Now Nineveh was an exceedingly great city, three days' journey in breadth. Jonah began to go into the city, going a day's journey, and Jonah called out, Yet forty days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. And the people of Nineveh believed God. They called for a fast and put on sackcloth from the greatest of them to the least of them. And the word of Jonah reached the king of Nineveh. And the king arose from his throne, removed his robe, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat in ashes. And the king issued a proclamation and published through Nineveh, by the decree of the king and his nobles, let neither man nor beast, herd nor flock, taste anything. Let them not feed or drink water, but let man and beast be covered with sackcloth and let them call out mightily to God. Let everyone turn from his evil way and from the violence that is in his hands. Who knows? God may turn and relent and turn from his fierce anger so that we may not perish. When God saw what the Ninevites did, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that he had said he would do to them, and he did not do it. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Over 100 years ago, from 1907 until 1910, so roughly a three-year period, there was a powerful movement of God that swept across the nation of Korea. And this historic moment has since been labeled the Pyongyang Revival or the Korean Pentecost. And during that time period, God's Holy Spirit was poured out in a massive way, transforming lives on a wide scale and setting the nation on a trajectory such that by 1977, there were an additional two and a half million more professing Christians than there was before the revival in 1907. And there were an additional 1,300 churches started over that same period. And even today, according to recent polls, over 25% of South Koreans identify as Christians. And that stands in contrast with the neighboring nations of China and Japan, uh, within which the population is less than 3% professing Christians. So when I say that this three-year period from 1907 to 1910 was historic, I'm not exaggerating. What happened in those few years was a powerful movement of God whereby his spirit was poured out and lives were transformed on a wide scale. But here's the thing. It wasn't simply that people who used to not identify as Christians started identifying as Christians. It wasn't simply that people's religious affiliations changed. Their lives changed. Their actions changed, their attitudes and mindset changed, and two big societal sins were confronted during this revival. One was theft, and another was hatred, specifically hatred for the Japanese. And I don't have time to get into the reasons why, but these were two widely acceptable sins in Korea at that time. So theft was a big part of life and almost expected that people were going to steal from one another. And the other socially acceptable sin was hatred for their rival neighboring nation, Japan. 
But when this revival happened, it wasn't just a revival of religion or a revival of people identifying as Christians. It was also, and perhaps most importantly, a revival of repentance. As Koreans were turning to Christ for salvation, they were also turning away from these sins that had dominated their society, especially theft and racism. So regarding theft, there are numerous reports of restitution and reparations being made, new believers who would return stolen property or pay back illegally earned money. And regarding racism against the Japanese, there was a fresh rejection of the idea that Koreans were racially superior than the Japanese and that before the cross, we are just as sinful and broken as their enemies. And as I said, God then responded to the repentance of these new Korean believers as the church exploded in growth over the next several decades, standing out even today for the large number of Christians in comparison with neighboring nations. God responds to repentance. That's the lesson we learn from the Pyongyang revival and that's the lesson we learn in Jonah chapter three. So four times in verses eight through 10 alone, we see the word turn. It's the Hebrew word shuv. And even though it's not translated here as repent, that's what's happening in the story. And this is what repentance is. It's a turn. It's an about face. It's a new direction. And when these Ninevites repent, when they turn, look at what happens. Jumping down to verse 10. When God saw what they did, how the Ninevites turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that he said he would do to them, and he did not do it. God sees their repentance, and he responds to their repentance by himself turning away from what he said he was going to do, namely pour out his judgment against them. God responds to their repentance with favor and mercy. So church, we've got to get this. God does not respond to us having cool pastors. God does not respond to us having nice buildings. God does not respond to us drawing a large crowd. God responds to repentance. When we live lives of brokenness and humility and honesty about who we are and what we've done. And in Matthew chapter 12 and Luke chapter 11, Jesus actually holds up the Ninevites as models of repentance. He, in essence, says to his crowd, you want to know what repentance looks like? Look at Jonah chapter 3 and the Ninevites. Jesus says that the people that he's preaching to, by and large, don't repent, but the Ninevites repented at the preaching of Jonah, this puny prophet in comparison with Jesus. So we can learn from the Ninevites what repentance looks like. What does repentance look like? That's the question we're asking ourselves this morning as we work through Jonah chapter three. What does repentance look like? And the first thing we see is that repentance begins with hearing the word of God. Repentance begins with hearing God's word. In other words, we cannot repent of our sin until God's word has shown its light on our sin. So look back at verses one through four. Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time, 
saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against Nineveh with the message that I tell you. So God's word again comes to the prophet a second time. Jonah is to call out against Nineveh. In other words, Jonah is to deliver a message that is against the way that the Ninevites are currently believing and living. God says, call out against them. And notice what it says there at the end of verse 2. Call out against Nineveh with the message that I tell you. So this is critical to the role of a prophet. They are not to speak their own message. They are not to rely on themselves for what they are to say. They are not content creators. They are content deliverers. Speak the message that I tell you to speak. Speak my word to the Ninevites. And the same must be true for us today. Anyone who would speak with religious or spiritual authority into our lives, we must make sure that they have rooted their message in the now finalized, canonized message of Holy Scripture. Now, for us, at this moment in redemptive history, this is the most explicit revelation of who God is and what God has done and what His will is for our lives. God says, call out against the Ninevites with the message that I tell you to. Not just any message you want. So verse 3 We see how Jonah responds, and it's much differently than the first time around. So Jonah arose and went to Nineveh, according to the word of the Lord. Now Nineveh was an exceedingly great city, three days' journey in breadth. Jonah began to go into the city, going a day's journey, and he called out. And here's his message. Yet 40 days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. So there it is. It's this brief but apparently effective means of encapsulating God's word for the Ninevites. It's the simple warning. Yet 40 days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. Perhaps Jonah said more, but we don't know. Best we can tell, it's just this concise, simple warning from God to the Ninevites. They are going to be destroyed, and time is running out. But there's still time, 40 days. The transformative repentance that's going to take place starts right there when they hear God's word. When I was 19 years old, I left home to go to university about eight hours away from my hometown. And my plan was to continue to do what I had been obsessed with doing the previous several years, party and play football. But little did I know, I was about to hear God's word in a fresh and powerful way. So you know how it is when you go to a new place, you're looking to meet new people, and lo and behold, one of the guys I met was a Christian. And he asked me if I would come to a Bible study with him and trying to be polite, and he seemed like a nice guy, and I wasn't going to church anymore because mama wasn't making me. So I said, sure, why not? I'll go to your Bible study. And I don't remember much about that Bible study at all, but I remember two things. John chapter 3, verse 3, and 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 15. Those are my life verses. John chapter 3, verse 3, Jesus says, Truly I say to you, if anyone is to see the kingdom of God, he must 
be born again. If anyone is to see the kingdom of God, he must be born again. When I heard that word from scripture, I said to myself, I have no idea what being born again is. The only thing I know about being born again is that it has not happened to me. My life has not been changed by Jesus such that I could say I have been born again. So according to Jesus, I was not going to see the kingdom of God. In other words, I'm not going to heaven. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 15. The apostle says that Christ died for all, that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but live for him who died for them. So again, I said to myself, well, this is obvious. Contrary to this scripture, I am living for myself. I live for my glory, my popularity, my selfish desires, my pleasure. I am living for myself. And yet, the apostle says that Jesus died so that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but live for Jesus. So those two words from Scripture exposed me to the truth about myself. I am not born again, and I am not living for Jesus. And it was those two verses, those two words from God that stuck with me, I dare say haunted me, now 17 years later. It was those two verses, those two words from God that ultimately set me on a path whereby I eventually repented and turned to Christ for salvation. It all started in that old musty dorm room with a bunch of wannabe walk-on boneheaded football players. I heard the word. But what about you? What's your story of hearing God's word and coming alive to the reality of your sin and ultimately turning from it to Jesus? What's your story of hearing God's word? And how are you continually hearing God's word? Because the truth is, we don't just get saved by hearing God's word. We grow on God's word. God's word nourishes us as well as saves us. God's word keeps us. So how are you continually hearing God's word? Because if we are to have truly repented, and if we are to live lives of repentance, it begins with hearing God's word. Second, we, le- we learn about repentance that it involves believing the word. Repentance begins with hearing the word, but it involves believing the word. So look back at verse 5, going through the middle of verse 10. Jonah called out the Ninevites, uh, called out against the Ninevites with this word of warning. Then in verse 5, the people of Nineveh believed God. Now, all of this activity follows, right? They fast, they put on sackcloth, the king gets involved and calls for a nationwide fast that includes even animals. He decrees that they call out to God for mercy. They do a lot of things. But all of this activity is rooted in what he first says happened at the start of verse 5. The people of Nineveh believed God. In verse 4, they hear God's word. In verse 5, They believe God's word. And the Hebrew word translated there as believed is the Hebrew word aman. And it also means to establish 
to support. So when it says that they believed God's word, it carries the idea that they established themselves upon God's word. They relied upon God's word as true and dependable. They relied on God's word as a building relies on its support beams. They hear God's word and then they believe God's word. And then come all of these symbolic actions, right? These symbolic actions of their repentance and belief. Fasting, putting on sackcloth, sitting in ashes. These are symbols of their brokenness. They are acknowledging through these symbolic actions. They're acknowledging we are not God. We are sinful, we are empty, we are desperate. So their belief manifests itself in these outward symbols of humility. And this is something we still do today. Namely, through the symbolic act of baptism. When someone hears the gospel and responds with repentance and faith, Jesus has given us orders to then baptize that person. And we don't always think of it this way because we're always so excited when someone is being baptized, but baptism is truly a sign of humility. Going under the water represents us going under the water of God's judgment. Think of Noah's flood. It represents our death. Now, gratefully, we don't keep people under the water. The good news is that Jesus rose from the grave so that we too might walk in newness of life. But this action, baptism, is a symbol of brokenness. An action that carries the meaning that we deserve to die because of our sin and face God's judgment, being plunged under the water. Well, that's what the Ninevites are doing here. They are symbolically communicating what has happened in their hearts. Namely, they turned to God in repentance and believed his word. So the most important fundamental question we must ask ourselves is, have you believed God's word? Have you relied upon God's word? Have you established yourself upon God's word as that which supports you? Do you believe that he created you? Do do you believe that he is your Lord? Do you believe that he can be your savior through Jesus? Do you believe God's word? And then secondarily, how are you symbolically showing your faith? Have you been baptized as a sign of how you deserve death, but Christ raised you up? Or like the Ninevites, do you practice fasting as a sign of your neediness before God? And also like the Ninevites, do you spend focused time with fellow believers just calling out to God for mercy, collectively acknowledging your need for grace? How are you symbolically manifesting, externally, visibly showing what you believe in your heart? Repentance starts with hearing God's word. It leads to believing God's word, and finally, it requires responding to God's word and the way we live. Repentance requires responding to the word and the way we live. Now, if you noticed earlier, I stopped reading in the middle of verse 8 when the king was sharing his decree, because there's an important part of how they were responding with repentance that I want to especially make note of. He says, we're going to have this fast. Even our animals aren't going to eat or drink. We're going to cover ourselves in sackcloth. We're going to call out to God together. And then in verse eight, he says, let everyone turn 
from his evil way and from the violence that is in his hands. So if you were here four weeks ago when we started this series, you may remember the long description I read by a scholar about the brutality of the Assyrian Empire of which Nineveh was a part. They were ruthless, savage, murderous people, just gruesomely violent in the way they treated their enemies, and that likely bled over into how they treated each other. Just like the Koreans were given to theft and racism, and I was given to partying and self-obsession, the Assyrians and Ninevites seem to to have been given to violence and brutality. And the king knows this. He knows this about his people. So he knows that if I'm going to call the people to repentance in accordance with God's word, then I have to call them to turn from their violence. So that's what he says in his decree. Let everyone turn from his evil way and the violence that is in his hands. Repentance requires responding to the word, turning from our life of sin. In John chapter 8, we hear the famous story of Jesus and the woman caught in adultery. It's one day these religious leaders bring a woman who had been caught committing adultery, they bring her to the temple. And Jesus was there at the temple during that time. The religious leaders say that in accordance with the law, we are prepared to stone this woman. But they first ask Jesus, Jesus, what do you say about this matter? And Jesus then responds with that famous line, let he who is without sin cast the first stone. So Jesus defends this woman He stands up to her accusers. This was a courageous, deeply compassionate act for Jesus to have done for her. And then later in private conversation, Jesus essentially announces the woman free from condemnation. He says, who here condemns you? They look around and all the the religious leaders had left. She says, no one. Jesus says, well, neither do I. He essentially announces her free from condemnation. So it's this beautiful moment that shows the merciful heart of Christ. Nevertheless, the very last thing Jesus says in his conversation with the woman is go and sin no more. So he doesn't just mercifully defend her. He doesn't just pronounce her free from condemnation. He also calls her to repent. He calls her to respond to his word of grace by walking away from the sin that has hurt her life. Because repentance requires that we respond to God's word in the way we live. So what is it for you? The Koreans were hung up on theft and hatred The Ninevites were hung up on violence and brutality. This woman is hung up in adultery and sexual promiscuity. I was hung up on abusing alcohol and living for myself. What is it for you? What is it in your life that God is shining his light on? Well, whatever it is, the Ninevites give us a template for repentance. Hear God's word. Believe God's word and respond to God's word by turning from your sin. Jesus 
meets you with compassion. Just like the woman caught in adultery, in your sin, Jesus meets you with compassion. In your sin, Jesus hurts for you and he longs to show you mercy. Receive his grace that comes from the cross where he died for sinners. Receive his grace and then go and sin no more. Repent and live a life of repentance. May it be so. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. Our Father in heaven, we come before you this morning aware of our need. Aware of our sin. And we thank you, God, that you speak You speak a word of warning. You speak a word of repentance. But also a word of love. And so I pray, Father, here for the most hardened among us. To the most broken sinner. That we would each hear your word. As we've opened the scriptures. As your spirit is alive. Speak, O God. Call us to yourself. Call us home. Call us to the cross. Call us to rivers of grace. Call us away from our sin. We thank you, God, for your infinite mercy so that we can come here each week and unload our failures at the foot of the cross and be free. In the same way that you did that for those crazy sinful Ninevites, I pray you do it for us Lapirians. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for joining us as we study God's word together. We would love to hear how God is moving in your heart and get you connected into the Woodside Bible Church family. Head to woodsidebible.org slash connect to introduce yourself today.